Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Crossover Cross Time podcast for a uh, unplanned Monday episode for this week 19. Uh, of course, we're just coming off of the recently concluded All-Star Weekend, so uh, we'll have a lot to talk about that, but we are still going to keep that part of our schedule intact. Um, firstly, I should address, of course, obviously, uh, I had mentioned on that little short Thursday announcement, more than really an episode, that I would... Uh, that we rather would do our normal Friday episode, uh, get back on track with our, you know, franchise focus or bonus episodes, get caught up with uh, the last couple of days of normal NBA action before the all-star break. Uh, but unfortunately I was pretty sick over the last couple of days. You can probably tell in my, my voice that I'm still recovering from that. I'm feeling much better today. You know, I, I think within the next day or two, I'll be, you know, pretty much back to normal excuse me um but i needed to i felt like i needed to to do an episode today uh even though i didn't plan to do one today because we still have a couple days before normal nba action resumes but i felt it was pertinent to do one today so that we could get those last couple of days of action that we didn't have covered uh get caught up to where we'd like to be so that when it comes time for thursday's show we can do our normal all-star recap that we are planning on doing uh, I'll be at full strength. We won't have the need to get caught up at that point. So um, uh, enough said. Basically, what we'll do today on today's show, we're going to go over the game summaries from last Wednesday and Thursday. So that is February 15th and 16th. Those two days of NBA action, we're going to cover what happened in those games. We're going to talk about the latest news. This does cover much of the last, uh, you know, almost week without getting into much of the all-star specific news. Again, we'll talk on that type of stuff this Thursday on that show. And then we will do a franchise focus for the Utah Jazz, my favorite team, and as, as well as the host team for this year's all-star game. So certainly pertinent there. Again, I would have liked to have been able to do this on, on either Thursday or Friday before the all-star break. So extra correlated, but, uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, sickness kind of, it has that way of coming up on you. And then that's the funny thing about it. It's one of those, you know, you don't realize what you have till it's gone or uh, maybe the reverse. You don't realize how nice it is to not have uh, congestion and, and a cough and things like that until suddenly you have them. Uh, but regardless, we'll do our franchise focus for the jazz today. Um, and then we will do uh, a very short game previews again, when I had this planned for either Thursday or Friday, I would have given you the previews for the all-star action, but since that's concluded, uh, we'll give you previews for Thursday's action because that'll be the, the one game of action you won't have covered before, uh, before we're back on that Thursday show. So that's kind of the schedule for today. Uh, so let's get right into it. Firstly, uh, from Wednesday's action, uh, the first game from that slate, the Charlotte Hornets beat the San Antonio Spurs 120 to 110, further extending the Spurs Losing streak of 14 straight losses. Uh, that's been a devastating stretch for the Spurs. Uh, I kind of mentioned it uh, last week at some point how I felt, you know, the Spurs have maybe the best chance or one of the best chances to land that top odds at the number one pick. Um, of course, we'll have more to talk about with the Spurs uh, as the season goes on, unless, you know, they make a miraculous change. We'll have to see what happens, of course. But, um, yeah, competitive first half, the Hornets took a lead into the second half, and then uh, it was still competitive through much of the game, but the Hornets still able to get the win here. Uh, for the Spurs, they were led by uh, 
Keldon Johnson and Malachi Branham, those two technically starting at the guards for this game. 23 for Malachi Branham, 21 for Keldon Johnson. Branham's had a nice few games over the last few weeks. Uh, kind of, you know, a small little bright spot for the Spurs team. But uh, for the Hornets, they were led by LaMelo Ball with a triple-double. He had 28 points, 12 rebounds, 10 assists. Uh, percentages were a touch low, but still a solid game. 22 and 10 for PJ Washington, uh, 12 and 10 with four blocks for Mark Williams, the rookie center that I'm excited to see get more of a chance with Charlotte, excuse me. And they won that game Wednesday against the San Antonio Spurs. Next, the Indiana Pacers beat the Chicago Bulls in Indiana, 117 to 113. Uh, and it, this was a rally. They were down by as much as 24 points at one point early second quarter. And actually, beginning of the the second half, they were down uh, 20 plus still, but then the, they rallied to take a lead in the fourth quarter. It was back and forth through the fourth, and then they managed to win the game and stun the Chicago Bulls. Uh, nice home home court victory for this uh, Pacers team. For the Bulls, it was Zach Levine uh, leading the charge scoring wise, 35 points with 11 rebounds. They also got 25 off the bench from Kobe White and three other guys in double figures. But for the Pacers, um, a touch more balanced attack, six guys in double figures compared to the Bulls, five. But uh, Buddy healed with 27 points, 21 for Aaron Neesmith, uh, and Miles Turner with 17, nine rebounds, and three blocks as the Pacers get that win against the division rival Chicago Bulls. Next, this one was a high up uh, game as far as our previews for the week. Uh, the Philadelphia 76ers win at home versus the Cleveland Cavaliers, 118 to 112, uh, building a big lead and never really looking back from that lead. Uh, for the Cavs, they were led by the backcourt, Mitchell and Garland. Donovan Mitchell with 33 points, Darius Garland 27. Isaiah Mobley added 23 points. Uh, meanwhile, for the Sixers, they had 29 and 14 rebounds for Joel Embiid. Um 19 points, 12 assists for James Harden. And uh, the rest of their starters, plus one bench guy, Tyrese Maxey, had 16 off the bench. The rest of their starters had 10 or more points. And the Sixers were able to get that win. Um, next, the New York Knicks win on the road in Atlanta against the Hawks, 122-101. to 101. Uh, They did not trail any point in this game. Led big through much of it. Uh, nice win for them. For the Hawks at home, Trey Young doing his normal stuff, 19 points, 11 assists. 20 points for DeAndre Hunter. Uh, DeJounte Murray, kind of a tough game, only six points. Uh, meanwhile, for the Knicks, Jalen Brunson continues a torrid stretch of late, 28 points, nine rebounds, five assists, 25 points, 11 boards for Julius Randle as the Knicks get that win against Atlanta. Uh, then the Celtics won at home against the Detroit Pistons, 127-109. to 109. Uh, Tatum with a big game scoring-wise in this one, kind of as you'd expect, I suppose. Uh for the Pistons, though, Bogdanovich once again led the way in scoring, 28 points in this game. Uh, they had five other guys with 10 or more points, including James Wiseman and his uh, Pistons debut off the bench had some some bright moments. But for the the Celtics, rather, we mentioned Tatum, 38 points, nine rebounds, seven assists on great percentages. 25 off the bench for Malcolm Brogdon, a uh, sixth man of the year name to consider as the Celtics get that win against a uh, struggling Detroit team. Next, the Brooklyn Nets win at home against the Miami Heat, 116-105. to 
Uh, this is a big game for Mikhail Bridges. We'll get to that in just a moment. Back and forth affair until the fourth quarter where the Nets, the Nets ran away with it. For Miami, all five starters scored in double figures, led by Bam Adebayo and his 24 points, 13 rebounds. Uh, Gabe Vincent added 21 points of his own. But for the Nets, it was Mikhail Bridges and his career-high 45 points, eight rebounds, five assists, two steals, and two blocks. Tremendous percentages, one of the best games uh, within the last month from any player we've seen, certainly uh, one of the top performances this year. Uh, they also had 19 from Cam Thomas off the bench and 18 for Cameron Johnson in that starting lineup, and they get that win against Miami. <clears throat> Next, the uh, Memphis Grizzlies beat the Utah Jazz in Memphis, 117-111. to 111. Uh, Fairly close game. Um, Jazz kind of dug themselves into a hole early. Memphis led by nearly 25 points early in that second quarter, and for the rest of the game, the Jazz were trying to claw their way back. Uh, not able to get it done towards the end. Admirable effort, but you kind of think, you know, the early struggles uh, put them in a position, uh, you know, a tough position to come back. Uh, for this game, the Jazz were led by Kelly Olynyk, 28 points, 14 rebounds, and 6 assists. Very good game for him. Walker Kessler, the rookie, with 10 points, 14 boards, and 3 blocks. They also had 20 points from Jordan Clarkson. Uh, but for the Grizzlies... It was uh, their quote-unquote big three, if you want to call them that. You know, Jaron Jackson Jr., the new all-star, 26 points, nine rebounds, five steals, four blocks, monster defensive game, 24 for Desmond Bain, 20 points, eight rebounds, nine assists for John Morant, the other all-star, as the Grizzlies get that win at home. Next, uh, the Oklahoma City Thunder won at home against Houston Rockets. Big win, 133-96. to 96. Uh, Not much of a contest in this one. Uh, Houston led by a couple of points at one point very early in the first quarter, and then that was it. The Thunder took the lead back, never looked back, uh, leading by as much as 42 points in this game. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, for the Rockets, they had a few guys in double figures, uh, 10 boards for Alperen Shingun. Leading score was Jabari Smith Jr. with 15 points. Uh, but for the Thunder, Shea Gilders-Alexander, as you'd expect, 29 points. Six assists in this game. They had 16 rebounds from Jalen Williams. That's L-I-N, Jalen Williams, playing at the center spot. Um, 13 each for Jalen, L-E-N, Jalen Williams, and Josh Giddy. 15 for Lou Gwen Stork, and 12 off the bench for Dario Saric in his, I believe that would have been his Thunder debut. Uh, so nice win, excuse me, for Oklahoma City there. Next, the Denver Nuggets win at home against the Dallas Mavericks, 118-109. to um, Kyrie Irving did not play in this game for Dallas, certainly a factor there. For Dallas, they were led by Luka in Kyrie's absence. Luka kind of, you know, shouldering the load, 37 points, 9 assists, 4 steals. Uh, 10 rebounds for Dwight Powell, 17 off the bench for Christian Wood. But for the Nuggets, uh, all starters had 10 or more points. Jokic was 14 points, 13 rebounds, 10 assists. Leading scorer was Jeff Green off the bench with 24 points as they get that win against Dallas. And finally, the last game from that Wednesday night action was the LA, the Los Angeles Lakers winning at home against the New Orleans Pelicans, 120 to 102, uh, dominating that second half, quote unquote, from the NBA's website, their summary of this game. For the Pelicans, 
They are led by Brandon Ingram. He had 25 points in this one. Uh, they also had 22 from CJ McCollum. Off the bench, 14 points and 11 rebounds for Willie Heron Gomez. Nice uh, contribution there. For the Lakers, though, 28 points, 10 rebounds, uh, 5 assists, along with a steal and 2 blocks for Anthony Davis. LeBron adds 21, 6, and 6 of his own. Uh, 21 for D'Angelo Russell, along with 7 assists. Uh, nice game for him uh, to you know be that tertiary man, along with LeBron and AD, and they get that win against the Pelicans. Okay, that was their what the Wednesday action. Now we have just three games from Thursday night. These are the last three games before the NBA went into the All Star break. Uh, firstly, the Milwaukee Bucks win in or they won the game in Chicago against the Bulls, one twelve to one to one hundred. Uh, they did lose Giannis early in that game due to a hand uh, hand slash wrist injury. We'll have more on that in just a moment. Um, despite that, though, they still led. Uh, convincingly throughout, and especially in that fourth quarter, they uh, ran away with this game. For the Bulls, they were led by Nikola Vucevic. He had 22 points and 16 rebounds, uh, 18 for Zach Levine, and 16 for Patrick Williams. But for the Bucks, uh, Brooke Lopez stepped up in Giannis's absence. Giannis playing only nine minutes in this game. Brooke Lopez had 33 points, seven rebounds, and four blocks. 22 points, 6 rebounds, 6 assists for Javon Carter, who continues to impress as a solid point guard or guard, uh, regardless of point or shooting guard, maybe a bit of a combo, but impresses for Milwaukee nonetheless. 15 points, 9 assists, 6 rebounds for the uh, other all-star alongside Giannis, Drew Holiday. Now the Bucks get that win against Chicago. Uh, next, the Washington Wizards win in Minnesota against the Timberwolves, 114-106, to 106, uh, and they rallied from as much as uh, being down as much as 20 points early in the first quarter, uh, and they were able to take the lead for the first time in the last few minutes of the game and win this one, kind of a stunner for the Wolves to lose. Uh, for the Timberwolves, they were led by uh, the first-time All-Star Anthony Edwards. He had 34 points, five rebounds, three assists, along with three steals and a block. Great all-round game. Gobert's strong game as well, 17 points, 19 rebounds, and three blocks, doing much more of the, you know, kind of stat line, more of the stat line you would expect or would have expected from Gobert uh, going into this season based on what he'd done in the last few years with uh, with Utah. 18 points for Kyle Anderson and 15 points for Jaden McDaniels. Uh, however, despite strong games from Minnesota, Wizards, Again, they took the lead and, and, and won the game. Bradley Beal, 35 points, six boards, five assists, and three steals. Kind of doing it all out there. Uh, he had five other guys with double figures scoring to support him, uh, despite a, a lot of players not playing in this game due to just, you know, coach decision. They kept the rotation a little bit shorter, uh, and they get the win against Minnesota. Finally, the uh, LA Clippers, the last game before the All-Star uh, weekend and the all-star break the LA Clippers win in Phoenix against the Suns 116 to 107 uh, and the Clippers led for much of this game the Suns kept it close and they actually took leads at various points in the second and third quarters but the Clippers held a big lead that never uh, you know never really went down in the fourth quarter and they won the game uh, going away for the Suns they were led by Josh Okogie starting. He had 24 points, five rebounds, and three steals. They also had 19 points from Devin Booker, 18 points from DeAndre Ayton, 
16 off the bench for the newcomer, Terrence Ross, and 11 assists for Chris Paul. Uh, meanwhile, for the Clippers, Paul George and Terrence Mann combined for 52 points. They had 26 points each individually. 13 points, 12 boards for Evita Zubats. 16 points for Kawhi Leonard, along with nine rebounds. And 13 off the bench for Eric Gordon as the Clippers beat the Suns. Okay, now we're caught up. And that's, you know, I feel feel good that we're able to get caught up to this point in the show. Again, we're not talking anything as far as the All-Star Weekend, the events, the game itself. We will do that on the Thursday show. Um, but we are going to report some of the news that has happened over the last week or so. Um, some of it uh, coming before the All-Star break, some of it during, uh, some of it actually just today. Uh, but I'll, we won't really talk any specific All-Star related news until Thursday's show. Uh, firstly, <clears throat> the NBA Players Association uh, has elected some new leadership Uh Grant Williams as a first vice president, Donovan Mitchell and Jaron Jackson, both as uh, vice presidents. Uh, so those guys have now been elected. They're going to serve greater leadership roles in the players association. Uh, Andre Godala and Kyrie Irving, meanwhile, uh, are kind of the ones outgoing from those leadership positions. Uh, so just some news there as far as players association goes. Uh, next for the Celtics, uh, coach Joe Mazzula has, officially been named the the head coach of course up to this point he's technically been serving in a like an interim type role it's been a, a bizarre situation ever since uh Yudoka was suspended uh due to the, the uh organizational oh there i you know forget the exact issue something with uh inappropriate relationship um i believe from a from what we've seen, it was, you know, like a consensual relationship, but it was something that was uh, non-permissible or was against, you know, organizational guidelines, something to that extent. Um, so Missoula has been technically an interim, but now he's been locked in. He's officially just the head coach. Yudoka now is either probably going to be um, reworked into the Celtics structure somehow, or he'll be let go and, be given the chance to maybe try and revive that coaching career somewhere else. It's hard to really say, I don't know the specifics, um, but along with this, him being named the official head coach, he's also received a contract extension. So they've locked him down uh, for a little while to be their their head coach definitively. So that's, you know, congratulations to him on that role. Um, next, a couple of free agency notes. Um, so we've talked about Russell Westbrook as being a, um, a player to watch out for on the buyout market. Of course, he has been with the jazz organization, technically a player for the jazz, but uh, much of the talk since he was traded to Utah uh, just a little more than a week ago has been that he would most likely be bought out and have the chance to sign with another team. Uh, and the report is that he is going to, you know, finalize that agreement with Utah to be bought out. And when he does that, he will then be signing with the L.A. Clippers. So probably within the next couple of days, that will become official. Interestingly enough, he moves over to the Crosstown rival and a team that's been needing some point guard play. Interesting to see if he'll be uh, that six-man type player that he has been up to this point in the season or if he'll uh, if they feel like he's the answer at a, a starting position. We'll have to see what happens with the, the Clippers there. Also, 
this touches with our normal transactions. The Cavaliers decided to waive uh, Kevin Love, longtime player, uh, champion with them, with LeBron, of course, and uh, one of their franchise all-time top players in, in rebounds. I imagine probably points scored as well by this point. He's been there for a long time, uh, nearing on, I think this is eighth or ninth season in Cleveland. Um, he spent most of his career there, actually more time than he was in Minnesota, interestingly enough. Um, so one of the franchise all-time, all-time great players, he now gets bought out and he has a chance to sign with a new team. And the reports are similar to Westbrook. The report is he will be signing with the Miami Heat once that really gets all official. So a couple of big name guys, actually two guys that played together in college at UCLA, interestingly enough, both of these guys who are, you know, all-star type players now finding new spots with contending type teams. Uh, Love will be joined by, reportedly joined by Cody Zeller, who the Miami Heat will also be signing. They're seeking to strengthen the depth of their uh, their front court. So those are kind of the big signings as far as the you know recent buyout market and free agency in general. A um, couple other notes. Firstly, uh, we mentioned the Giannis Antetokounmpo injury in that game on Thursday. Uh, we will say he didn't participate in the All-Star festivities because of this excuse me, deciding to, you know, rest, not risk any kind of further injury, just the, uh, you know, quote unquote, abundance of caution is kind of the phrase that gets thrown around with that a lot. So uh, the report today is that he's going to travel to New York uh, today, Monday, to undergo further testing on the injured wrist, see exactly what the uh, severity of that will be, what the timetable is, uh, and so on. Finally, <clears throat> just more official transactional type news. Uh, the Utah Jazz have waived forward Leandro Balmaro. Uh, he was a standard contract. Uh, the Spurs have claimed forward Justin Champagny. Again, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Off of waivers, he is a two-way contract, so he'll replace. Uh, I think they had cleared up a two-way contract at one point. Uh, and then the Clippers, they've waived uh, center Moses Brown, who is on their two-way, one of their two-way contracts. And they've replaced him with Nate Darling uh, to a two-way contract as well. And then, of course, also Kevin Love being waived, but we did mention that already. So that takes care of our news. Again, nothing all-star specific because we will focus on doing that on the upcoming Thursday show. Okay, <clears throat> now that we've got that caught up, let's do our uh, our franchise focus, as promised, for the Utah Jazz. And uh, you know, I'll be honest, I wish I was, you know a little closer to a hundred percent to be able to do this uh, than I currently am. You know, I'm like I said, I'm still feeling a lot better than I was, um, you know, just yesterday even, but um, still not a hundred percent, but we're going to make this work. And uh, I think the subject matter will kind of help carry me through as far as my, my favorite theme and some of my favorite, uh, you know, NBA conversation. Uh, so let's dive right into it. Of course, with franchise focus, we have it in three parts. Firstly, we talk about, the current team, uh, their direction, their outlook going forward. Then we talk about a historic team from that franchise's history uh, that's worth outlining for some reason or another. And then finally, we talk about a notable player and or legend from the franchise's history. Uh, And so again, my favorite team, some of my favorite players of all time. There's a lot to talk about here that, you know, is stuff that I love to talk about. So let's get right into it. Uh, Talking about the Jazz Direction, the conversation really centers on what happened this last offseason and the, the team as it's constructed this year. 
Of course, the last several years, the Jazz were one of the, you know, you take from 2016 through 2022, their cumulative wins and winning percentage, I I think it's easily top 10 in the NBA. It, I am willing to bet it's top five in the NBA, their total wins over that span of time. They were just consistently competitive. They weren't a top five team throughout that whole stretch. That would be a bit disingenuous. But they were a, a playoff team consistently for those years. Uh, a first round, second round team at their best, you know, really good second round type team. Uh, of course, their best season was the 2021 season. They had a 72% winning percentage. It's the best win percentage in their franchise history behind uh, the late 90s when they were, uh, you know, the second best team in the NBA behind the Chicago Bulls. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Since then, of course, they had a struggle, a bit of a struggle year last year, and then they decided to, quote unquote, blow it up, uh, you know, clear clear things out, just kind of start fresh. And that is defined by trading both Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell, the two most recent all-stars for the franchise uh, at that point. So, you know, the expectation, the expectations for the season weren't going to be huge. Uh, we didn't expect them to be uh, one of the best teams in the NBA by any stretch, or even a bet- top team in the West. They started off the season and surprised a lot of people. They went, you know, four or five weeks and they were consistently a top five team in the Western conference. Since then they've had some injury issues, but more than that, they've, I think just kind of come back down to earth. They've, gotten more in tune with kind of what we'd expected right now they're 29 and 31 uh 48 winning percentage not terrible um not great kind of you know just uh respectable you know i think it's a good sign for uh, you know first year head coach seems like he's a a solid coach if nothing else we can't really give too much of a, a verdict on will hardy as a coach until of course he's given more time gets the players in place to see if he's going to be a you know contending coach a championship level coach you know we can't make any kind of definitive statements but he's he seemed to be a good job doing a good job here and uh you know has a good head on his shoulders um and then you talk about the specific team and the roster it's uh again a lot of kind of uh, spare parts would be a rough way to say it and that and i think it would also be disingenuous but players that have you know they were used as trade pieces to get these more coveted players. You know, you, you lump in the guys that were the part of the Mitchell trade. That's Markinen, um, Colin Sexton, uh, Ochai Agbaji, who's the recent draft pick. You know, those, those few guys, those were, okay, we need to get this player who we think is going to elevate the team. And then it's the same story with um, the Rudy Gobert trade that gave the jazz uh, Malik Beasley, Jared Vanderbilt, Walker Kessler. Uh, and those are the main ones, you know. And then the other guys, of course, Conley and Clarkson are holdovers from their, their most competitive years. Olenek was um, – oh, you know what? Olenek was part of that. One, oh, he was the, uh, the return from the Bogdanovich trade. That's what it was. So Olenek kind of in that same category. You know, the, the Pistons wanted to get – Bogdanovich for their core, so they, they give up Kelly Olinick. Um and then of course with the recent trade deadline, they've further given up some of these players, Vanderbilt and Malik Beasley, along with Mike Conley, and they've instead brought in Juan Toscano Anderson. Um 
let's see. Yeah, Juan Piscano Anderson, Damian Jones. Uh, there's one or two others I'm forgetting here. But yeah, basically, it's just a, a mix of guys that were you know, kind of brought in to bring you know bring back a different kind of player that's what i'm getting at really um so not cast offs and you know not spare parts that's disingenuous but really just players giving up for somebody that they thought would be better overall you know for cleveland it's worked out very well for minnesota it's still jury's out doesn't look that great right now but what the jazz are left with right now is markinen clarkson olenic you have um, Colin Sexton, Walker Kessler, Horton Tucker, Akbaji, Rudy Gay, uh, Scano Anderson, and uh, Fontecchio, Damian Jones. You know, that's kind of the, the bulk of what their roster looks like at the moment. And I think they're in a pretty good spot. You know, again, we talked about the record is not bad at all for what the expectations were. But you also now have suddenly an all-star caliber player who was part of that trade, Larry Markinen, uh, seven footer, 240, 240 pounds, playing technically a small forward, which I think is a little bit disingenuous. I'd still think of him more of as a, a stretch four, but he's an all star this year 25 points per game, eight and a half rebounds. The assists, you know, about two assists a game, not stellar. Defensive stats, not bad, about a half a steal, half a block a game. His percentages are unreal. 51% from the floor, 41% from three, by far career highs, 87, nearly 88% from the free throw line. <clears throat> Excuse me. He's just taken a huge step up from what he was doing in Chicago and Cleveland. I mean, last year in Cleveland, he averaged about 15 points per game, and now he's brought that up by, you know, uh, 60%, 160%, you know, points compared to what he was doing last year. Uh, he's got a cool nickname now as well he might have had it in cleveland but it's especially become chic here in utah the finisher is one of the best current nba nicknames um but outside of that he's an all-star piece and he's fairly young too he's uh 25 years old getting into his prime you know contract isn't terrible because they were thinking of him as kind of an underachiever but now he's reached that all-star potential you have Clarkson still, who probably long-term won't be a big part of the picture. Olenek's playing well. You have Kessler, who's been enormously impressive as a rookie, and Sexton has that potential. I think the Jazz are in a good spot as far as their rebuild, but I think they're far from over and far from finished in tinkering with this roster. I won't be at all surprised if next season's Jazz team is, you know, 40% of these guys and 60% a bunch of different players, draft picks, uh, young talent that was traded for, uh, free agent signings, you know, that are like one year, two, two year contracts, things like that. Don't be surprised if there's still a lot of change, because again, there's a good amount of these guys that are, you know, holdovers, Rudy Gay, Clarkson, um, that are, you know, they've been with the Jazz for a little while and they're aging players. Uh, Clarkson will have value in the NBA and maybe he, he stays with Utah, but he is a touch older than maybe their current timeline. He's 30 years old, which isn't terribly old. But again, if they're trying to build young, then he might not be a part of the picture long term. Same thing with Olenek. Olenek's probably 
Well, he's 31. So it's just all about, um, you know, now they've got a an all-star type piece. You know, what do their drafts look like? And they're clearing up cap space. So they make some free agency maneuvers. So they try and lure a big name. You know, that's kind of where the Jazz are at right now. So long-term outlook, that would be my big takeaway, I guess, is the sense that this current team doesn't have a ton as far as, you know, the growing <clears throat> talent. They have Markinen, who's, you know, an all-star now, proven himself and can maybe even get a little bit better. He's a, a piece to build around. You have Walker Kessler, the rookie. He's a locked-in piece for how good he's been, and he's been a replacement for Gobert inside and is able to do some things that Gobert wasn't able to do. You know, there's a lot of potential there. He keeps Sexton, too, still fairly young, a lot of potential, a lot of, you know, exciting traits at that guard spot. Maybe outside of that, Ogbaji, you probably keep him. He's very young. You keep Taylor Horton Tucker. Uh, and then a lot of the other pieces are going to be not quite expendable, but they're going to be pieces that you can look to shift and move and bring in, you know, pieces that fit your timeline. So that's what I think the outlook is for the Jazz. I think considering what the standard was, what the expectations were that were set with the offseason moves, they're in a pretty good spot this year. And the expectation going forward, expect a lot of adjustments. You know, they continue to make moves uh, and be ready for, you know, not a ton of roster consistency until they find at least one more all-star bordering on all-star type of talent or player to fit alongside marketing. And then maybe they start to kind of slow down and they feel like they're starting to find a nucleus of a new type of team. Uh, but again, outlook looks pretty good. And speaking to the jazz franchise as a whole, as we transition more to that historic team, people might be surprised, you know, outside of diehard NBA circles, the casual fan might be surprised to know that the Jazz have a top five winning percentage in NBA history. Um, I mean, let's see. I'm trying to find, yeah. Their overall franchise winning percentage is 544. Uh, and they've made the playoffs 31 times in 49 seasons. The lack of a championship, of course, hinders that in some people's minds, but they've almost always, and even more than that, if you discount the early New Orleans Jazz years, which I wouldn't do because, you know, what my favorite player of all time was on that those teams. We'll get there in just a moment. But if you discounted those teams and just the years they were in Utah, their record would be even better. Their first four years in Utah, they were a below 400 winning percentage team. In 84, they made the playoffs, and they were above 500 every year from 19, the 1984 season to the 2003 season. That's nearly tw that's about 20 straight seasons of playoffs every year, the peak of which was 97-98, the two finals years. They had 75, 
in 97, they were a 780 win percentage, 64 and 18. And then the next year, 62 and 20, they were 756 win percentage. They have that huge stretch. They then go three seasons where they were still two of the three above, at or above 500, 04 to 06. They miss the playoffs. And then they get right back into the playoffs for four years in the mid to late 2000s with Darren Williams and that, excuse me, that whole new crew. Um, Missed the playoffs for a few years and then they were back in it with Mitchell and Gobert. So again, much of their franchise history, they've been competitive, you know, a competitive team, competitive franchise. And uh, I want to talk about a team from that second stretch and a, a surprise team to an extent. And we're talking about the 07 Utah Jazz. Uh, looking back the previous year, the 06 Utah Jazz, you had uh, Darren Williams in his rookie year, and he was a, a very promising rookie, about you know 11 points a game, four assists, two rebounds. You had a stalwart for that team, Andre Karolinko, who I believe would have made uh, all defensive that season. Uh, in the year prior, in 05, he was the league blocks champion. He was a very unique player. In 06, he was averaging 15 points, eight rebounds, four assists, three blocks, one and a half steals. Super dynamic player. Boozer was injury plagued in the 06 season, but uh, I assume injury plagued. He only played 33 games, but when he played, he was effective 16 points, eight rebounds. Uh, you know, solid post presence, one of the better post scorers. O'Kerr was coming into his own, still a young player. So the 06 team, you saw that there was a potential for them to to get back into that playoff mode. But going in the 07 season, you wouldn't quite have expected them to have the season they did. The 06, 07 Utah Jazz, regular season 51 and 31, which great record in the regular season. Um, in the West, that was good for a fifth seed, which not bad. These are the days where, you know, if you weren't winning – nearly 60 games, you weren't going to be, you know, home court advantage team in the, the Western conference playoffs. It was kind of a crazy, crazy era, but they 51 and 31 great year kind of fulfilling all that promise. And in the playoffs, they had a great run. They win a close series in the first round against the Houston Rockets, the GMAC Houston Rockets in the semifinals. They go off against the, we believe warriors. Of course, the warriors upset the first seed Dallas Mavericks. It was a feel good story. The Jazz have to contend with that. And the Jazz were record-wise a worse team than the Mavericks were, and the Mavericks just got beat. But the Jazz beat the Warriors convincingly four games to one to then go to the conference finals against the San Antonio Spurs. And they lose in five games. That's not too much of a surprise. You know, a little bit of a Cinderella run comes to an end. Um, the, the Spurs, of course, go on to win the championship against LeBron's Cavs. But the Jazz, you know – it. They made the conference finals that year, and it's just kind of, you know, the underappreciated, and I am maybe speaking too much to, oh, no one appreciates the Jazz, just because, you know, as a fan, sometimes it's easy to feel like that when plenty of teams get underappreciated at various moments. But this was just an exciting team for them to be able to go to the conference finals like this after missing the, the playoffs at all for the first you know, last few years before this, it was exciting. You know, Darren Williams <clears throat> really emerged as in that era, one of the top five point guards in the NBA. A lot of people had him closely ranked with, 
Chris Paul as maybe the best point guard, uh, at least for the next few years, he'd be in that mix. 16 points, nine assists, and a steal a game. Still not quite as good as he would be uh, in his all-star seasons. Uh, of course, in <clears throat> but it, it was it was very close, just a little bit less scoring, a little bit less on the steals. Boozer emerged as a, I believe he was an all-star. Yes, this was his first all-star year. Uh, he was the leading offensive guy, 21 points per game, nearly 12 rebounds, three assists, low post scoring. And it was, <clears throat> excuse me, shades of totally different play styles, not comparable levels of player. But you think of, you know, an assisting point guard and a scoring power forward. It was sort of like a, you know, budget Walmart version of a, you know, Stockton Malone type duo. Again, not saying they're comparable players, but these were still good players. Darren Williams and Carlos Bruiser was a nice little mix. Mehmet Okur added that stretch five wrinkle. It was super unique at the time. Your center that can shoot threes, he shot more than four threes a game and shot 38%. He averaged about 18 points, seven rebounds. He was an all-star himself uh, this very season alongside Boozer. Karolinko took a step back. He wasn't really an offensive focal point, but he was able to just focus on what he was really good at as far as the defense and the, the physical presence. They added Derek Fisher, who technically was the shooting guard on this team, I suppose, uh, that playoff and championship experience as Interestingly enough, a member of the rival Lakers, but he brought it for the Jazz here and contributed for them. And then the bench isn't bad. You have Matt Harpering, who was a a veteran swingman who could shoot and you know play uh, a little bit of an all-around type game. Gordon Giracek, again, a shooter. Uh, so you had the shooting covered on a lot of bases for this team. Uh, you have Ronnie Brewer, a defensive guard, a bigger guard. You have Jaron Collins, uh, twin brother of Jason, of course, but Jaron was a nice little center in his own right. Uh, decent rebounder, you know, could could play for you. And not to mention, playing 18 minutes a game, you have uh, a rookie Paul Millsap. One of the other, you know, what ifs, what if the Jazz held on to Paul Millsap and he would have helped stabilize them and probably kept them in the playoffs for the stretch in the early 2010s where they missed the playoffs. But, you know, rookie Paul, Paul Millsap showed what he was capable of and 18 minutes, he averaged seven points, five rebounds, uh, nearly a steal, nearly a block. That dynamic game that he had. So it was a really exciting mix. They even had C.J. Miles as that 11th man, uh, you know, shooting as well, adding some points. And, uh, yeah, it's again, it was an overachieving team to an extent, and it wasn't too surprising for them to lose to the Spurs, but it was an exciting team to uh, – you know, be a part of, I imagine this was before my real recollection. I, I wasn't honestly in 2007. I mean, I was, was pretty young. I was only eight years old and um, I wasn't a huge basketball fan at that point in time. Uh, I was into more like video games and other stuff, which I still am. But uh, I remember, you know, of course being in Utah Everyone was a jazz fan, and in this time, it was especially present. You know, I heard people talk all the time about Carlos Boozer and Darren Williams and Karolinko and O'Kerr and Millsap, you know, and everyone knew all the players, and it was an exciting team to be around. So I, even that vague memory, eight years old, just being in, you know, the the market, the 
the market of this team, you know, I can have those remembrances of what it sort of was like to be part of this exciting, you know, playoff run in these teams. And so if I can remember that from just those little recollections, I can imagine how exciting it was for people in Utah to be, for that team to suddenly be in the conference finals. Um, not much more I can add to, add than that was something I wanted to shout out. Cause again, people recognize, you know, they knew the jazz played the, the bulls in the finals in 97, 98, uh, but they might not know the Jazz made conference finals, of course, with Stockton and Malone plenty of times before that, but they also made it with Williams and, and Boozer, so just kind of an exciting team to, to talk about. Um, we're kind of maybe running a little bit longer than I would normally plan on, um, and hopefully I can limit myself with this one, because we're now on to our legend, and I mentioned before, I didn't want to have this legend slash important player segment just be me talking about my favorite players but with an opportunity to talk about the jazz i have to talk about my favorite player of all time and that is pete maravich pistol pete maravich he is my favorite player uh of all time in nba history uh he was a 6'5 200 pound uh guard shooting guard uh sort of a point guard ish at small moments, but yeah, pretty much shooting guard. Um, I could give you the whole story, the whole background. Um, I'll take this moment to plug the uh, biography by Mark Kriegel, uh, Pistol. That's a great book. I've listened through that several times. Um, there, you know, you could go all sorts into the, his life story, how interesting of a person he was, let alone a basketball player, how revolutionary, revolutionary of a player he was. Um, his college career, which is, there's no other word than um, unprecedented, and his records will never be broken. Let's focus just what he was able to do with the Jazz. And again, this is the New Orleans Jazz. He was actually with the Jazz their first season in Utah for a few games until he was traded, or no, he was bought out, I believe, and then signed with Boston in the back half of that season. But he played five full seasons with the New Orleans Jazz and then 17 games with the the Utah Jazz. In those five seasons, he was an all-star three of the five years. He averaged nearly 26 points a game, nearly six assists, four and a half rebounds, one and a half steals, shooting uh, 43% from the floor, 83% from the free throw line. No uh, three-point percentages are available because they didn't have the three-point line until the very next season when he was in Utah. That was the first year they had the three-point line. Um, His best season, 1977, he averaged 31.1 points per game, leading the league in scoring. He's a scoring champ. Uh, five and a half assists, five rebounds, uh, including, I believe that was the same year that he had his career high, which was at home against the New York Knicks, and he scored 68 points. Um, yeah, that was 1977. Um, he had n- numerous games of 30 points, 40 points in his tenure, and, you know, with, with the Jazz. Um Maybe the biggest legacy is giving the Jazz a chance to thrive as a franchise. 
Think about the Jazz in 1975, their first season of existence. They're an expansion team. They're in what a lot of people would consider at the time, you know, that's just a, that's a football market. You know, you're in, in the South and Louisiana, nearby Mississippi. And, you know, that's football country. That's SEC territory. Football is the focus. And there's not a ton of interest as far as basketball goes, especially in Louisiana. I mean, Pete Maravich knew that firsthand with uh, LSU and what LSU was as a basketball school before he got there. Um, But similar to what happened with LSU, what he brought to the Jazz through his tenure, even more than his all-star level of play, his all-NBA level of play, his scoring championship, um, was his draw. He was Pistol Pete. He was the, the most exciting player in the game, regardless of, of position, of color. He was the guy, and he had style. And people came out to the games. They didn't care if the Jazz won or not. That was, you know, a secondary concern. They cared if Pistol had a great game, if he scored and if he put on a show. He was a great shooter. You see in his last year in in the NBA, uh, he, you know, split time between the the Utah Jazz, the Boston Celtics, that 1980 season, the first year they had the three-point line, uh, across 40, nearly 50-something games. He didn't take very many threes, but he averaged uh, 66% from the three-point line. That's absurd. If he was to shoot one or two threes a game, I still think he probably would have averaged about 40% on threes. He was a, you know, one of the true marksmen, especially in the early days of the game, one of the great outside shooters. So he could shoot it from anywhere. He had an arsenal of moves inside, being able to finish layups, make plays, you know, George Gervin style uh, floating layups. He had the, the whole package. He had the incredible ball handling. That's one of the biggest legacies. If you know anything about Pistol Pete, you've maybe seen the the homework basketball videos on on YouTube somewhere, or you've seen Red on Round Ball, where Red Arbach is talking to him about his his dribbling drills, and he does the ricochet drill, and he slams the ball, you know, between his legs, catches it behind his back. Uh, at lightning quick speeds. So he had the ball handling, he had the shooting, and his passes. He was, you know, he, there's a, a clip on uh, on YouTube of Jason Williams, a totally different player, but it says, Jason Williams is incapable of making a two-hand chess pass. You could probably say that of Pistol Pete, too. Every pass he made was going to have some sort of flair. It was maybe a no-look, or it was going to be behind the back, or between the legs, or it was going to be a a fake left passing right and no one knows what's happening. He was just so far ahead of, of his time. He was one of the guys that um, I think Mark Kriegel that I mentioned in his biography of, of Pete Maravich, he said that uh, in 97, they named the 50 greatest players in NBA history. And he said that of those 50, Pete Maravich was the only one that would have fared better in the, in the nineties game that, was happening when that team was named than he would have in his, in the era that he played, you know? And so again, I can't talk much more about Pete Maravich without just going on tangents. Cause again, he's my favorite player of all time. Um, I recommend that biography again, but more than anything, he made that 
jazz team viable as a franchise because they drew. They got people to come out to the games. They set attendance records at the Superdome. They played games at the Superdome. Think about the Superdome is where the Saints play. They've held Super Bowls there. They would convert it and make it work for NBA games, and they broke numerous attendance records for a, a by all accounts, lousy uh, team winning less than 40, 40 games a year, finishing below 500 consistently. But they would draw because people wanted to see Pete. And more than anything, you'd like to be competitive, but especially in this era of the NBA, before the 80s and before teams were, you know, financially rock solid, there were some inconsistencies. And as an owner, you're probably more concerned with, can we draw, can we get fans, and can we sell tickets to remain a viable team in the NBA? And that's what he did for the Jazz, more than anything. Obviously, he's a great player. He's had his number retired by the Jazz, uh, number seven, of course. He did also wear number 44. But he made the Jazz exciting, and he allowed that team to survive where the owner then moved them to Utah and then the current jazz, Utah jazz were kind of established and honed and developed, I suppose. So again, at the risk of droning on too much about Pete Maravich, I'll, I'll stop there, but I could do a whole podcast episode. I'm sure I could do several talking about Pete Maravich and his, his legacy and his career. So many interesting things, but again, I recommend that, that, uh, that book by Mark Kriegel. It's a fantastic one. I recommend, you know, YouTube videos of Pete Maravich. He's, he's a fantastic player. I also just don't want to risk, you know, talking about what, what everyone already talks about with Pete Maravich, how stellar of a player he was because, because he was a great player and there's not really much more I can add to that other than, um, you know, what everyone that's kind of already said. So with that, I'll go ahead and, and call it good for our Utah jazz franchise focus. Uh, I feel good about how that, you, you know, all of these these aspects that we talked about. Let's jump to the, the last main segment before we get things kind of wrapped up here. So our game previews uh, for this week will really just be what's what are the games on Thursday? Uh, because, again, we won't have any games until Thursday and we won't have another episode of the podcast until Thursday. So Thursday's games themselves will give you some previews. And the, the two I'll talk about are the two national broadcasts. It's a TNT doubleheader. Firstly, at 7.30, the Memphis Grizzlies are in Philadelphia against the 76ers. And then at 10 o'clock, the Golden State Warriors are in Los Angeles against the Lakers. Um, first game, Grizzlies-Sixers, I think John Morant and Joel Embiid, that could be a very interesting matchup. Both of those guys and their, their edge and what they bring to the game outside of just their play, but kind of their, their attitude, that could be an interesting one to watch. Dylan Brooks as well, him matching up against Embiid, and if there's a, a scuffle in that one, oh, watch out. Uh, and then that 10 o'clock game, Warriors-Lakers, again, it's a disappointment that Steph Curry uh, probably still won't be back from injury at that point. Hopefully he is. Hopefully he's back as soon as he can be. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, Pacific Division matchup. That's, you know, your two most prominent, along with the Clippers, I suppose, but your two most prominent California teams. Uh, the two deeply historic NBA teams, I suppose. As far as that matchup, again, if Steph Curry's not playing, you'd have to see a big step up, as we've seen at moments, from Jordan Poole, Clay Thompson, mm-hmm. if he has a nice game, 
uh, what Wiggins can do there. And then for the Lakers, see what their their new kind of supporting cast surrounding LeBron and AD, what they can do against that Warriors group. The Lakers can start to string some wins together post-All-Star break, see if they can really make a push for that play in and maybe even playoff-type spots. Um, so that's previews for Thursday. Again, once we come back on Thursday, we'll have more of our normal weekend previews and stuff like that. Uh, finally, well, we had a The Stay in History, but again, I haven't updated that since we didn't plan on doing the show today. Um, let me see if I can find a This Day in History fact for you uh, without much preparation. February 20th. Let's see what kind of facts we have for February 20th or notes from this day in history. Uh, I'm going to double check this here and see which ones I might want to talk about. You know, what? let's go with this one. I'll go with both of these. I, the first one really caught my eye. February 20th of 1972, that date in NBA history. Larry Brown of the Denver Rockets set ABA records for assists in a game with 23, assists in a half with 18, and assists in a quarter with 10 during a 146 to 123 win over the Pittsburgh Condors at Denver. Number of great facts. Larry Brown in his playing days, ABA, Denver Rockets, Pittsburgh Condors. I mean, come on, that's all great stuff. I love the ABA. But also, a lot of assists, you know. And it's just... More often than not, all these great coaches that were players at one point were like point guards. You know, at least it seems like that was the case. Um, so that's a great one. But I also, in uh, in alignment with our franchise focus that we did, we've got to talk about this one. February twentieth of nineteen ninety six, uh, Utah's John Stockton became the all time leader in steals with two thousand three hundred and eleven, passing the previous leader Maurice Cheeks in a 112-98 to win over Boston. So definitely had to recognize that one, uh, what Stockton was able to do at this on this day in history, uh, becoming the all-time leader in steals. So definitely worth talking about that one. But uh, that being said, thanks, uh, everyone, for listening. Again, I apologize for the days that we've missed. Apologize for this show, the way my voice kind of sounds, the fact that I'm still kind of sick. And uh, hopefully this show worked out well i feel like we did a good job with this we'll be back on as we've mentioned multiple times throughout this episode we'll be back on for thursday's show where we'll give you a proper all-star weekend recap talk through all the events the game itself things like that and then we'll get back into the swing of things uh at that point today of course with this episode we'll also post uh one or two of the bonus franchise focus episodes so stay tuned for that as well uh that being said thank you all for listening And we'll be back with you on Thursday's show.